Good morning to you. Take your Bibles and look with me at Luke chapter 11. In the 11th chapter of Luke, where we've been studying, and of course, as you know, in this text, it is a time in Jesus' ministry when he's pointing out a particularly deadly tendency on the part of the false religionists around him. It becomes very instructive to us. Jesus is talking here about the sin of hypocrisy. The sin of hypocrisy. You remember that um, this is nearing, of course, Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. This is some weeks or months before he gets to Jerusalem where he will redeem sinners by giving up his life on the cross. And so there are lots of times when Jesus walked the earth and hypocrisy was all around him. In fact, there isn't a human being whom he ever faced who hasn't at one point or another been a hypocrite because we're all born hypocrites. We're born loving ourselves, puffing ourselves up, believing we're better than we are. Jesus knows the real story. And there's only one perfect man who's ever walked to the earth, and that is Christ. Even Adam was in untested holiness. Jesus in tested holiness as the second Adam. Every other human being is born a hypocrite. We live as hypocrites unless Christ redeems us and we can see our hypocrisy and take the mask off and have the power to actually live for him. But as Jesus approached Jerusalem, things began to get ramped up because the hypocrisy of Israel was so great that many were being led astray at devastating levels. And Jesus was at the point in his ministry where he was going to be leaving and going to heaven upon his death, burial, resurrection, and then exaltation. And so he begins to address it more directly and direct he does address it. You remember that in this particular scene, he has been invited to a brunch with a Pharisee and all kinds of Pharisees around in the home and some, some experts in Old Testament law, as this text indicates. And this is not long after they'd already said to him in public, we see the power that you have, but we believe you're satanic. You do what you do by satanic influence. And so things are ramping up indeed, because now you've got a Pharisee inviting him as a local rabbi, and the hypocrisy is thick already coming into the brunch. The Pharisee, of course, follows his traditions that make him look more spiritual by going over to his basin and washing his hands ceremonially before the brunch. And he notices in this text that Jesus does not do that. And looking at Jesus with contempt, having a heart of hypocrisy and wearing a mask that Jesus could immediately pull off if he wanted to, there is the Pharisee looking at Jesus as though Jesus were unrighteous and the Pharisee were clean. It wasn't, it wasn't maybe a year earlier that Jesus was in the home of a Pharisee and hypocrisy was thick. But Jesus' approach in that scenario was to give a living illustration to unmask the hypocrisy. Not on this occasion. On this occasion, having been accused of doing what he does by satanic power and unmasking that argument, he now finds himself at a brunch with a Pharisee who's looking at him with condescension because he didn't wash his hands. You remember what he said in verse 37, or verse 38 following, it says that the Pharisee was surprised that the ceremonial wash didn't happen. And Jesus says in verse 39, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you're full of robbery and wickedness. Don't you know, he says in verse 40, you're going to have to answer for both. God made the outside and the inside. You dress up the outside, but do nothing on the inside. You're still going to answer to God. 
And so he says in verse 41, if you really had charity in your heart, if real love for God and real love for others was in your heart, you'd be clean through and through. Why? Because it would demonstrate you're redeemed. You're in Christ. You see the issue. You're not wearing a mask. You've set aside self-righteousness. You're not trying to work your way to heaven. As it is, this Pharisee is all about wiping up the outside and leaving all the, the junk on the inside and acting as though he's clean and worthy. And so what you have here in this next section then is Jesus getting very, very serious about what I've told you are deadly enemies of the gospel, the deadliest of all. Strong warnings of judgment are here in the words of Jesus because he is going to unmask the hypocrisy and demonstrate that they are facades. These men wear facades and in their false religious influence, they lead others into ruin because of these facades. And as I said last week, if you're not working your way to heaven because you're already in Christ, you may not identify exactly or as an exact parallel to the Pharisee or anybody else in this room at the brunch. But even as Christians, it's instructive for us. We we have within our unredeemed humanity hypocritical tendencies. We do some of these same things. And if you let that go long enough, you can become deceived to it, hardened to it, not see it. Everyone else can see your hypocrisy, but you're blind to it. And you begin to have these same tendencies in and among God's people while you profess Christ. In the same way, the Pharisees profess to be God's people, children of Abraham. And the hypocrisy was rampant. What was their stock and trade? Well, I gave you two of them last time, two facades last time. The first was the facade of full obedience, or we might call it selective obedience. Verse 42, woe to you Pharisees. You, you're meticulous about your tithes. You pay the mint and the rue and every garden herb, like the law prescribed, or your traditions added prescriptions. You, you go down to the minute little giving of the herbs the way your traditions say to do it. But what do you neglect? You, you utterly disregard treating human beings with justice, mercy, and you don't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your feet are um, connected to the stench of death. People don't know, like they're walking, when they walk around you, they're walking over graves that are covered over. It's the facade of full obedience. Oh, you tithe down to the detail. Oh, and the Pharisees loved the meticulous way that they tithe down to the detail, and yet they neglect what is more weighty, what is the provision of the law that makes your heart really tested. Are you going to love others with justice and mercy and love those things, as the prophet Micah said? Are you going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or do you just like to dress up the outside with your little, little regulations? And then we noticed in verses 43 and 44, the facade of humble leadership. Notice verse 43, you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. I mean, these are the leaders of Israel. No, we, we, we lead God's people. And yet what they loved was coming into the synagogues and being given the place of honor as the most pious. Oh, there's the holy man. Oh, there's the holy one. Let some of that holiness splash off on me. Oh, they loved it. They ate it up. They liked being called doctor and rabbi and all of those things. They walk around in long robes, Mark 12, 38. The longer the robe, the greater the, the measured history as a Pharisee, the, the greater the experience as a doctor of Old Testament law. So the more respected you were, the longer the robe. And so they, they like to walk around in them. They parade their robes. Nothing sinful about marking someone out for distinction, but they loved it. <laughs> they liked walking around in the robes. I'll tell you this. Can I be honest? 
I know that there's an awful lot of high educational pomp and circumstance with a seminary graduation, but the robes make me uncomfortable. I can just tell you that right now. We have to wear them. They do mark us out as to what we have done and what we train and how we train. And there's an official nature to that that's appropriate. But I don't want to walk around in that thing. I don't wear it to Publix. <laughs> hey, I've got this education. They look goofy anyway, don't they? Really? They're goofy. What are we doing with that stuff? Can we? Never mind. Anyway. <laughs> they love the formal greetings. They love to be honored. And Luke verse, chapter 20, verse 46 says they like the banquets that they go to because they're given the place of honor and fed first and served first. And they say they're humbly leading Israel, but they really are all about self-glory. But Jesus now cranks it up because there are two more masks that he is going to pull off, two more facades in their hypocrisy that really are the most deadly. The most deadly. The first is requiring something of others you're not willing to do. In other words, oppressing and controlling people with traditional applications of God's word, elevating your application of that, that truth to the level of authority, holding it over people, and then behind the scenes you find loopholes to get around it. This is gross hypocrisy. You do this, I don't have to. The second most deadly that Jesus refers to here is pretending to love God's word or the prophets through whom God's word came and yet you yourselves deny Jesus. You disregard Christ himself, the ultimate one to whom the prophets pointed. You say you love God's word, but you don't obey Jesus. I love to do that in a gospel presentation. All right, forget all of what you think is a contradiction in the Bible. What do you do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What do you do with the person of Jesus Christ? What do you do with the fact that he's sinless and was said to be sinless from his enemies to even those dying on the cross next to him? This man has done nothing wrong. He's innocent. King Herod, he's innocent. Pilate, he's innocent. Which one of you Pharisees convicts me of sin? They can't. He's innocent. Sinless. All his life. What are you going to do with Jesus? You say you love God's word, but you don't love the words of Jesus. This is a deadly, deadly form of hypocrisy. And so Jesus wants to unmask these two. Let's deal with that first one there. We've already dealt with a facade of full obedience when you really don't want to obey fully. We've already dealt with a facade of humble leadership when you're really all about your own glory. Now let's deal with the facade of being the standard bearer. The facade of bearing the standard, verse 45. In the middle of this brunch, one of the lawyers said to Jesus, teacher, when you say this, you insult us as well. Verse 46, but Jesus said, well, then woe to you lawyers as well. Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, there's um, Pharisees there at the brunch, and there's some lawyers. Now, you have to understand, these aren't lawyers like we would think of lawyers. I know some of you would wish that your friendly neighborhood attorney were in the room like this. But no, these, these aren't the same. These are religious experts in the interpretation of Old Testament law and then writing out uh, the, the people's understanding of it. So these are experts in Old Testament traditions or the application of the law, the interpretation and application of it. And this guy, on behalf of the lawyers that are there, is feeling a little thrown under the bus here by Jesus. Why? Well, because Jesus has just rebuked the Pharisees for obeying the traditions down to the minute detail. You remember the Midrash, 613 extra regulations that came out of the 
interpretation of the Old Testament and how to apply it. And down to the detail, the Pharisees would meticulously follow the regulations. Jesus had just chided them, and these lawyers are getting the implication. Oh, well, if you're chiding them for following them, then you must be rebuking us for writing them because we wrote them. The Pharisees are our best students. And Jesus is saying, well, they're not good students. In fact, I give them an F. Now the the lawyers got it. They understood the implications. These are religious attorneys. They are PhDs in the interpretation of Old Testament law. And they are the most highly educated in the Torah. And they're the most highly feared in a debate. They know their stuff. And they interpreted how the Old Testament was to be applied. And then they would write these applications, we, we sometimes call them codifications, they would codify how the Torah was to be meticulously applied. They were the application police of Israel. They were the standard bearers. But instead of focusing primarily on an Old Testament command or principle, these experts in Israel's law wrote their interpretation of the commands and principles and then wrote what they believed was the only way to apply it, their way to apply it. And one of them speaks up because he's feeling like Jesus just threw the group under the bus and says, you insult us when you say these things to the Pharisees. When I read that, I'm, I'm thinking, this guy's just like the arrogant in a room, you know. Oh, you, you chide those Pharisees, but are you, are you including us with them? Well, I'm going to separate myself from them a little bit. I know that they meticulously follow what we wrote, but are you implying that what we wrote is bad? These guys don't like it that Jesus has just insulted the Pharisees, and it's because they wrote it. They wrote what they're obeying. So what does Jesus do? Well, they felt thrown under the bus. He just runs them over with it. (laughs) Verse 46. Woe to you lawyers as well. What do you do? You weigh men down with these burdens. They're hard to bear. And what what do you do? You yourselves don't even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You, You find the loopholes. You're the experts in the law, and you find rationalized ways to get around the very thing you hold over people to control them so that you feel you're distant from them, you feel better than them. And by the way, their standards... And, and their traditions had gone from simple application of Scripture to these insane lists of regulations that were too numerous to remember, let alone consistently apply. And with some of the Old Testament laws, these experts loved their own interpretation and the boatload of dizzying applications. They loved it. They loved to go over it again and again. In fact, one of their particular areas was the Sabbath. They loved that the Pharisees would be out there following their traditions regarding the Sabbath, and then they would all watch Jesus to see what he and his disciples were doing on the Sabbath. You say, why was the Sabbath such a big deal? Because it was easiest to look spiritual with regard to the Sabbath if you followed their little meticulous list of things you could or could not do. You say, well, I don't understand the Sabbath. Well, let me just boil it down for you. This is very, very easy to understand. Sabbath was given to God's people in Israel in Exodus chapter 20, the regulation about the Sabbath. And it was the command to rest from your labors. It was a command given by God to rest on the seventh day of the week from your labors. That is Saturday. And it was intended for Israel to have a weekly time set aside for two things. Very simple to understand. The first thing that they were to set aside time for was corporate worship that was undistracted by the strain of weekly commerce and the routines of of economic survival in Israel. Just, Just to set aside the strain of it and to corporately worship in an undistracted way their God together as a people. The second thing that the Sabbath law did was it reminded them of how God had rested from all his labors in order to enjoy with satisfaction the fruit of his work. 
And so if God enjoyed the fruit of his labors on the seventh day, then he wanted Israel to set aside that day to enjoy the fruit of their labors and remember that it was God that supplied it all. That's it. That was the essence and the heart of Sabbath law. Cease from your routines and your commerce and enjoy the fruit of the previous six days. But what God never intended, what he never intended for Israel to do was to stop working on the Sabbath and also stop ministering to people to have no mercy, no compassion, and to use your little regulations of stopping your work to ignore people and to ignore lives and to ignore love. He never wanted that. In fact, the Pharisees and the scribes had turned, had turned Sabbath law into some disgusting displays of pride. Three in particular. One, they used it to appear more righteous than others. Well, I keep the Sabbath by keeping these little traditions. You don't. Secondly, they used it as an excuse not to serve others. As I said, well, I have to not work on the Sabbath. I have to keep these little regulations. So whatever your need is, no, yeah, you know, later maybe. And thirdly, they used it as an opportunity to accuse others for not being as holy as them because they didn't keep the regulations. Say, how ridiculous did it get? <laughs> Here's just section 10.3 from Shabbat in the codification of Sabbath law this is what it says. When you stop working, a man may not carry a burden. He must not labor to carry a burden in his right hand or in his left or in his bosom or on his shoulder. But he can carry it on the back of his hand or with his foot or with his mouth or with his elbow or in his ear or in his hair or in his wallet as long as the wallet mouth is downwards or between his wallet and his shirt or in his shoe or in his sandal. What? What is, a, what is a Pharisee and an expert in Old Testament law going to do with that? Well, you didn't, you know, you carried it over here and you didn't carry it here, but I did. I carried it like this. You're below us. You're, you're violating this or that. There was an illustration of this in Luke 6. Look there for a moment. Luke chapter 6. You remember, this is just absolutely ridiculous, but back in chapter 6 when Jesus and the disciples got hungry, you remember what happened. They were passing through some of the grain fields on the Sabbath, Luke records in verse 1. And his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. And, of course, the law did forbid on the Sabbath taking your sickle and cutting some grain from your neighbor's field as if you were doing the work. But the law did not forbid the, the idea that if you were desperate and in need of food, you could go pick some of the grain in your neighbor's field, whatever you could grab with your hand, to satisfy your immediate hunger. That was caring. There was your, it's the Sabbath, but you got caught in travel. You're there, you're going by the field, you're hungry, you're desperate. The idea of Sabbath law wasn't to, to prevent someone from meeting a need, a basic human need. And that's all the disciples were doing. But the Pharisees were walking behind them, following them, watching them walk through the furrows. They'd, they'd watch them pick the heads of grain and they'd rub them to sift out the edible part and they were eating it. And you know what? Here's the thing. The Pharisees were not bothered by them eating the, the grain. What bothered them was rubbing with their hands. You're, the rubbing motion, you're working. What bothered them was that they equated winnowing with the sickle as work. Listen, the law was designed to turn God's people toward him and toward one another. The law was never designed to become something that served mankind so that mankind could separate himself from other people, look more righteous than other people, or find some easy way to find loopholes around whether you had to do it and other people didn't or vice versa. 
hammering out some human interpretation of the letter of the law while you ignore the spirit of it was precisely what was forbidden by God. And in this passage, you notice what Jesus says to them, verse 2 of chapter 6. Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath, they said to him. And he said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? He's referring, of course, to 1 Samuel 21. He says, how he entered the house of God, took and ate the consecrated bread, which isn't lawful for anyone to eat except the priests alone. And he gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And he's just referring to that time when David is on the run from Saul and he's near Jerusalem with his companions and he knew now that the fresh bread was being served up and uh, on the golden table inside the area called the holy place and so the old bread would be now available for the priests to eat. So David went to the priest, he let his need be known and the priest gave him the old bread. It was still consecrated unto God but it could be eaten to meet a need so long as the recipients had a clear conscience and a real need. David went and represented his conscience and they were consecrated to God, they loved God, they were doing the service of God and they had a real need. The bread was given to them. The regulation wasn't to prevent people from having their needs met. But these experts in the law had turned the Sabbath into a day not of enjoying the fruit of a week of labor, but they turned it into a burdensome lifestyle that was uninterested in the heart of the law. And if they could get everyone else to focus on all their little rules and regulations, then they themselves could look more righteous by pointing out how many times people failed. And they themselves could find loopholes in their expertise in the law to get around them. That's what Jesus says is so wicked here. You tie up heavy burdens on people and you yourselves won't even lift a finger. You weigh men down with these burdens. By the way, the word, the terminology, same terminology Jesus is going to use or similar terms when he's on the temple mount a week before his death, when he says the same thing, Matthew 23, verse 4, you're tying up heavily burdensome burdens the heaviest kind of things you're putting on other people's shoulders and you yourselves are unwilling. You find loopholes. This is so true of false religion. You know, the health and wealth gospel movement is so rife with this issue. Oh, you need to, you know, by the authority of our gifts and, and God's work through us, you need to give your money. And by the way, if you gave your last bit of money, just trust God for a harvest. You're not. You're taking in all their money. They're your harvest. Why don't you trust God by giving all the money back? Pastor friend of mine and I wrote a, we wrote a parachurch organization one time because they kept badgering us, this charismatic parachurch organization. They kept saying, I think I may have told our congregation this before. They kept saying, hey, give us money, give us money. We wrote them back and said, hey, the church needs a lot of money here. Uh, we know you got a stockpile there from other churches. Why don't you just give us some of your cash? <laughs> we have a real need here, brother. We made it all flowery. We didn't get an answer. I mean, this, these guys run around, they congratulate themselves on upholding the standard. They're the standard bearers. Oh, you're not obeying. And they conjured up those things with their legal expertise in the law. And then in their own life and in their own practice, they find loopholes to get around having to come under it. This is, this is sinful. This is wicked. These false religions do this all the time. They oppress others with particular applications of God's commands while they find ways to get around it. Mark 12 says that Jesus made this comment about how they devour vulnerable people. He says they devour widows' houses, Mark 12, verse 40. 
And then, you know, he goes on to, to talk about that scene where he's sitting across from the treasury and he sees all these rich people doing this display at the treasury, bringing their money. And then there's this poor widow and she comes with what Jesus says was all she had to live on. And she gives it. And this is not only an illustration of someone in her case, giving everything she has and all these rich people are, are just greedy and giving as a display, but not really genuine. It's also very instructive because it comes on the heels of that comment. They devour widows' houses. Vulnerable people oppressed by rules that are invented by the leaders to manipulate them and that the leaders themselves don't even follow the same regulations. All false religion leads down this path, path, beloved, oppression, greed, gross hypocrisy of putting a yoke on others you won't, you won't live under yourself. I think often of those belief systems that, that have religious communities even in our country where they look down on the secular world because they're separate from it and they say, well, we, we, don't, uh, we don't involve ourselves in the, you know, in the secular culture so we don't have electricity. Oh, oh yeah, that over there, that's a generator and that's a satellite TV but we don't, you know, we don't work like you guys. You know, you young people grow up under that hypocrisy. They see it. They see what you're doing. You're just finding loopholes while you oppress a community with all of these things that aren't in scripture. Perform these rituals for the church and you'll have mercy from God in the end. Really? Where is that in scripture? Where is it that I have to go confess to a priest? The Bible says I can confess right to God as a Christian. Why do I have to do this little regulation to, to gain merit? Say these prayers at these times during the day, every day, and paradise is guaranteed. Wait a minute, how come you keep saying it's, it's only guaranteed for the elite, for a select few? Give money to these causes and God is obligated to bless you. Or there's even more subtle forms in, in false religion. You know, we can sing only these songs. You can only wear these garments. You can only use this vocabulary. You must not go to this place or associate with these decent people because they occasionally associate with these other people whom we don't agree with. You get third, fourth degree separationism, manipulating people without scripture. Why? Because they want control over people and they themselves will not come under the same regulations. It's rampant in false religion. But the believer is warned. Christians are warned. There are sanitized versions of this even within the body of Christ. And Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount warns about it. Hey, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and you don't notice the log of self-righteousness in your own? So what does he say? By the same standard of measure you measure other people, you're going to be measured. So there it is. There's the hypocrisy of holding other people to something you're not willing to live by. And that can happen in our own Christian lives. When we take an application of truth and we elevate it to the, to the level of authority of a principle in scripture and we start to hold our application over people, oh, you must apply this truth exactly the same way the rest of us do. Really? There's multiple applications to a principle in scripture as long as the scripture principle stays intact. You see people do that all the time. Or what about parenting? You know what exasperates children the most? Hypocrisy in parents. Hey, don't cheat. Tell the truth. But you cheated on your taxes, dad, mom. Hey, you need to share. Yeah, but you're stingy as a parent. This is the same sin. You, you put rules and burdens on the consciences of your children, but you're not willing to come under them yourself. Hey, resolve your conflicts. Make sure you forgive your brother. Yeah, but you don't forgive dad, do you, mom? You hold grudges against that person over there in the church that you don't like. We have sanitized versions of this. 
Hypocrisy in the home is a devastating thing. It's a devastating thing. We may not be a part of a false religion working our way to heaven, but we can act like hypocrites. So Jesus unmasks him right there in Luke 11. Back to that text. This last one is probably the deadliest of all of them, and it unfolds very quickly, even though there's a lot of text here. It unfolds very quickly, and it's the facade of ancestral reverence, revering those through whom the word of God came, in this case, the prophets. Oh, we love the prophets. We memorialize their graves. Jesus says, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. And so your witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. What does he mean by that? Look, you memorialize the prophets as if you accept the word of God. Matthew's gospel says they distance themselves from their forefathers. Oh, they killed the prophets, but we wouldn't. If the prophets were around today, we would, do, we would, we would honor them just like we honor their graves. And Jesus says, oh, really? The prophets pointed to me. How come you don't listen to me? The prophets pointed to Christ. The prophets said he was the Messiah. Go back and read the scriptures and, and demonstrate how clearly it points to Jesus of Nazareth, the one who arrived, but you don't believe in him. Maybe the sanitized version of this is, I say I love God's word, but when it comes down to opening up and seeing exactly what Jesus says, no, nah, 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 I'm not interested. Look very quickly at John chapter 8. Jesus illustrates this in a showdown of dramatic proportions with the Pharisees in John 8. Verse 31. Actually, let's back up to verse 21. He said, if I, I go away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And they thought he made some reference, oblique reference to suicide. And he said, verse 23, you're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. Therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so they were saying, who are you? And he said, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. So he's setting them up to say, look, the father, the one you say you worship, he sent me. What I speak is what he's speaking. We're one. And they're going to mention Abraham, and he's about to say, oh yeah, you think you're followers of Abraham? Abraham loves me. Verse 31, Jesus saying to those Jews who believed in him, hey, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You say you love my word? You say you love the prophets that brought it? You memorialize their gravestones? You say you wouldn't kill them like your forefathers did? Then why do you not like me? Why do you hate me? Because they spoke of me. Verse 32, you will know the truth when you abide in my word and the truth will make you free. Well, they got all offended at that. Oh, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say we're going to become free? You're basically saying we're in bondage to what? We're not enslaved to anyone. We're Abraham's children. We're special. We're, we, we are God's people. You don't acknowledge us. You're nothing. Jesus says, well, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Are you sinless? Pharisees? Jesus was sinless. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Didn't really matter who it was from Pilate to all those that we mentioned. Jesus is sinless. They can't even convict him of sin. And so verse 35, I love it. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. Look, if I'm a son and I'm from heaven, I'm the only one that can get you in. You're just a slave. But if the son makes you free, verse 36, then you're free indeed. Look, if the son adopts you in, 
If you're brought in to, the, to a relationship with the son in the family, then you're not in bondage anymore. You're not merely a slave. You're a son. I know you're Abraham's descendants, verse 37. Yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. You say you love the prophets, but you don't love his word. You won't read the prophets and, and admit who they point to. You won't do it. You don't want it to be me. You hate the fact that it's me. Listen, we do that all the time, beloved. You say you love God's word, but sometimes you're just a hearer of it and not a doer. And what comes out of your mouth is hypocrisy because you say, oh, I, I really, really love the word of God. And then somebody opens up to a passage that cuts at some area of your life and you say, oh, that's not, I mean, that's not what Jesus meant. We invent new ways to follow him. We invent a Christianity of our own making. Same sin. Notice Jesus says, Verse 38 of John chapter 8, I speak the things which I've seen with my father, and therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, well, if Abraham, if you're Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham didn't even do. I was sent in your time to tell you the truth sent directly from God. Abraham was merely a patriarch. You follow a patriarch and the one sent directly from God is here? Don't tell me you love God's word. Don't tell me you love the prophets. Don't tell me that. You don't. Or you would do the deeds of Abraham. But instead, verse 41, you're doing the deeds of your father. And they slandered him. We're not born of fornication. That is a reference to the virgin birth. The fact that Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit as a virgin. This is a, re a slanderous reference to Jesus' background. We aren't born of fornication. Slander. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said, well, look, if God were your father, you would love me. Verse 44, you're of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's the father of lies. I'm the one that speaks the truth, verse 45, verse 45 and you don't believe me. It is the facade of revering God's word and the people through whom God's word came and God's son, the word himself. It's saying you revere God's word, but then in your life, you don't actually submit to it. You find all these ways around it. Back to Luke 11, let's close it out. So he says, for this reason, verse 49, the wisdom of God said, or it has been said in the wisdom of God, depending on how you translate it, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. What? That's right. Everyone from Abel, whose blood itself gave testimony. Abel's sacrifice was accepted, then he was killed by his brother, and his sacrifice was real and a testimony to Christ. From Abel all the way down to the post-exilic prophet Zechariah, every time a prophet was sent to Israel and they killed him, all the blood of all those prophets persecuted and killed will come down on this generation Jesus is talking to. Why? Because the Son of God, the one to whom all the prophets pointed, was right there in their face. And they're saying, you know what? I'm more righteous than you. I'm Abraham's child. I can... I can put rules on people. I wrote the rule book. I wrote the law. I've got a PhD in it. Who do you think you are, Jesus? And he says, woe to you lawyers 
because all this is going to come down on your head. It's going to be charged against this generation. Verse 51. Even Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. I mean, that must have frightened him. Man, he not only is it Old Testament testimony, but specifics. Even the blood of Abel when he was killed, even the blood of Zechariah where he was killed. Blood crying out from the ground. It's all coming down on your head because the one to whom they pointed is in your midst. Woe to you, lawyers, verse 52, because you've taken away the key of knowledge. Man, religious hypocrisy, spiritual hypocrisy, hypocrisy of any kind cuts off people's oxygen hose to the truth. And for those who influence others and cut off the truth, taking away the key of knowledge but themselves do not enter, this is devastating. You don't want hypocrisy to grow in your life because you are... You are standing between someone's knowledge of Christ and, and their rescue. You're standing between that and Christ himself. And you yourself aren't going to get in because you're the hypocrite that's the obstacle. You don't want to do that. You don't want to harm somebody. You want to be faithful. Come on God's terms. You guys don't even enter yourselves, but you hinder those from entering. I just love verse 53. Well, when Jesus left there, the scribes and Pharisees began to be very hostile. <laughs> Sometimes I want to say, Luke, please give us the real deal. One commentator said that here you have Jesus in a brunch in a Pharisee's house with Pharisees and experts and scribes in Old Testament law sitting right there. And he keeps saying, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Here's your hypocrisy. Here's your hypocrisy. He's pulling off mask after mask. Listen, when he went to Nazareth, they tried to throw him off a cliff at the beginning of his ministry. The commentator mentioned that here, Jesus actually, he gets out without some massive attempt to kill him on the spot. How is that possible when he's been so forceful? It's just... On the one hand, the grace of God to let these Pharisees hear the truth one more time from the Son of God himself, even though he could have cut them off. And secondly, it's just the sheer force of Christ's cold, calculated, personal presence in bringing the truth. They are stunned by it. And all they can do is wait till he gets out of the room before they start plotting against him, verse 54, to catch him in something he might say. Up to this point, they haven't caught him in anything he might say. He has made them fools in front of their Old Testament expertise. Why? Because he knew their hearts. They were hypocrites. So he just pulls all these masks off. You say you're fully obedient? Oh, yeah, you're meticulous about the easy things, but over here there's love for others and love for God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you, you just disregard that. And there's all these ways that you could serve others and be obscure. You say you don't want to be noticed, but all oh, you do things to be noticed. You want to be noticed. It's hypocrisy. And then, what about this tendency you have to use applications of Scripture to put yourself above other people, distance yourself from people, rather than going back to the Scriptures and always being very, very careful to apply them as God has called you to apply them and then come alongside others and the two of you bring all that application together, but you don't use it as a way to lord it over people, control people, or hold on to your traditions in a church, whether the scriptures talk about them or not. I remember being in a church one time, I had a different version of the scriptures, and they singled my wife and I out because I had a different version of the scriptures, and we were not welcome. Fear mongers, controlling people with external rules, yet they themselves found their own loopholes around them. This is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. 
You parents, don't you do that to your kids? You want to bring a strict standard of the law of God into your home from the scriptures? Yes, it is authoritative. It's binding. And you yourself must come under it. You don't stand with a Bible over your children with your finger pointing downward. You all come under the scriptures. If you call them to the standard of the Bible, you need to strive to live it and seek forgiveness when you don't. That kind of hypocrisy will exasperate children and send them against God. And if you say you love God's word and you love the son through whom it came and you love the prophets of the Old Testament and the fact that they pointed to Christ, then are, are we doers of the word? Or do we redefine it? Do we get around it? Do we evade? Do we find ways around it like they did and became a whole entire system of false religion? Don't do that. Don't say you love the word. Don't come here to church and say you love the word if... All you do when you hear it is yawn. We need to be faithful to Christ and not let the seeds of hypocrisy like this sink into our lives. Amen? Let's bow together. Lord, you were so steely-eyed on that day. You called them out. It was right to call them out. They had accused you of being satanic. How unthinkable. And then in pretense, invited you to a meal. I'm so glad that you called them out for the the splash of conviction comes my way and gets all over me. For I too many times have said one thing and done another, held someone else to a standard I haven't lived, been selective in my obedience because some areas are too hard, complain about them, said I don't want to be noticed and yet want to be noticed too many times I've said I love your word but I've not been a doer of it Lord we as your people plead with you to keep us from this kind of hypocrisy which leads to apostasy and false religion thank you for calling it out always help us to never cultivate it nurture it but run from it flee from it starve it to death by your power May we be genuine people whom you've said should love without a mask, Romans 12, 9, to love without hypocrisy. Keep us from these facades. And for those who, who are wearing a mask today, they don't know you. They, for them, even attendance here is just a external. Lord, I pray that your truth has unmasked them. Call, call them to your compassion and your mercy and your forgiveness. Call them to your truth. May they not fear, but come to you who casts out all fear of judgment in your perfect sacrifice. May they throw off their self-righteousness once and for all. Grow us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.